0: Before we jump into the reading of uh, scripture uh, this morning, what we're going to do, we always do every Sunday, kids, uh, youth, students, our young ones, let me, let me tell you what uh, the scripture is going to be about. Let me tell you what the sermon is going to be about. I'm going to give you a preview here, okay? I'm going to tell you a little story. True story. Uh, this was almost like 10 years ago, uh, thereabouts. This is uh, when Peyton, my middle one, who's now 12. This is about when he was like four uh, we're out to dinner. Out to dinner with the family, out to dinner with the, uh, uh, you know, got the whole crew there, and we go to this dinner outside. It's a really nice night, so this is one of those places where, like, all the kids are running around. They're free to run around while the parents are enjoying their dinner, and the kids are having fun. Well, little four-year-old Payton is out and about doing his thing, and we notice that he's, he's hanging out by this other table nearby. He's got, like, two other dads and two other moms. And we, we see that Peyton, he's over, and he's, he's, he's hanging out by them, and we see him, he picks up one of their drinks, and he takes a sip. And he puts it down, and he takes off, and he's like, oh, my God. And we're, we're try, kind of trying to ignore it at this point. But then he comes right back. He go, they must have said something, because he goes right back. He goes behind the two dads who are sitting down, and he puts his, puts his hand on their heads, and he pushes them. At that point I, I jump up and I run over to Tim and I'm like, yo, "Yo, I'm so sorry, Peyton. What are you little 4-year-old Payton? I'm like? Peyton, what are you doing? No. No, 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 no. We do not push. We do not push. You need to say you're sorry." He's like, "Eh, sorry," you know. And and we, we you know, s- super embarrassed whatever. We we <laughs> after dinner I'm talking to Peyton. I'm like, "Peyton, like, why did you push those dads?" And Peyton has always been super thoughtful. So Peyton pauses and he thinks about it. And he says, "Because my heart just wants to beat somebody up. <laughs> this is four-year-old Payton, who's like the nicest kid ever. Okay, so kids, what we call that, we call that sin <laughs> in our hearts. And we all have sin in our hearts. It might look different in your heart. It might look the same in your heart. Um, but we all all have sin in our hearts. We've all had sin in our hearts since we were itty, 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 bitty. Uh, okay, so question. Kids, and y'all can just throw out anything that comes to mind. Kids, what will not fix the sin in our hearts? What do y'all think? No bad answers. Just shout them out. Doing more sin. Richard says what's not going to fix the sin in our heart is doing more sin, and he is correct. That will not help. What else will not fix the sin in our heart? Not obeying, that's right. Not obeying, not doing what we're supposed to do, doing what we're not supposed to do. That's right, that will not help. What else will not? Not obeying what, Teddy? Not obeying anything come to mind, kids? And dad. Not obeying your mom and dad, good. And what do mom and dad, who, nothing. what's there, nothing? What, what do mom and dad constantly give you? Love, Love oh, that was so awesome. <laughs> yes, okay, love. You've got really good parents, okay? <laughs> what do, all right, here's what we do with our kids a lot. We give a whole lot of laws and rules. Like, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. Guess what will not fix the sin in your heart, kids? You may think this is really good news. It is. Rules. Rules. Rules will not fix the sin in your heart. Laws will not fix you. As in, following rules and trying to be really, 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 really good, that is not going to save you from your sin. Rules are not going to save you from death. Trying to be really, really good, that is not going to save you. What does fix the sin in your heart? Jesus Jesus, who obeyed all the rules and all the laws for you. Jesus, who then took your punishment on the cross for all your bad stuff that you've done. Jesus fixes you. Jesus saves you. Now, that does not mean, last thing, that does not mean we get to go break all the rules then. That's not what that means. It also does not mean that you are now going to be perfect because Jesus has saved you. He has saved you, and you're still going to mess up. Okay, what this does mean, what the gospel, what this salvation does mean is that when you mess up, you remember and you believe how much you need Jesus and his life for you and his death for you. And you remember and you believe how much he loves you. And you believe that he is coming back again and he's bringing his kingdom with you and he is going to make everything perfect, including you one day that is coming. This is a new year. This is a new spring. We're starting a new sermon series. Uh, we're in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. That's not a made-up name. It's not a made-up book. It's really there. It's uh, it's right there at the end of the Old Testament. Like, in the Bible, it's at the end of the Old Testament, and it's also historically happening at the end of, like, all the stuff that's happening in the Old Testament. That's where we're going to be this spring, The text this morning, we're kicking it off with just the first six verses. Zechariah 1, verses 1 to 6. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers, Therefore, say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. And as you are seated, travel back with me a little before what happens right here in Zechariah verses 1 to 6. Let's uh, Let's get our context right. Remember the great Babylonian empire, Nebuchadnezzar, destroys Jerusalem and he destroys the temple and he takes what's left of Israel into exile for 70 years. 70 years later, Persia comes along and Persia beats up Babylon and becomes the new world power. And Persia frees the Israelites and allows anyone who wants to go back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The first group of exiles to return, they go back to Jerusalem, they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They do this under the leadership of the Old Testament prophet Nehemiah, okay? Our Old Testament book, Zechariah, is about this prophet, Zechariah. A few years later, he's in Jerusalem now, when the temple is now starting to be rebuilt. Now, they're rebuilding the temple. Now, it says here that it's the eighth month of the second year of Darius, Darius is not an Israelite. He's not Jewish. He doesn't believe what the people of God believe. Darius is the Medo-Persian king, also known as Cyrus. Same guy. So yes, Israel has been set free, but they, uh, they don't show up in Jerusalem with political freedom, Uh, they don't have their own king. They are subjects. They are subjected to a foreign king, this Persian king. And only, only a very, 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 very small group has returned to Jerusalem. A lot of the Jews stay in Babylon, Persia now. Only three percent— 3% of the population that that they had back in Solomon's day when everything was awesome, only 3% of that population is back in Jerusalem. And this 3%, they are the poorest of the poor. And on top of their poverty, there's drought, there's famine, there's disease. Zechariah, he's got a companion prophet at this same time named Haggai. And Haggai's telling us all this. So you got this poor ragtag bunch and they are doing their best to rebuild the temple that was first built in Solomon's day when Israel was at its apex of wealth and power and glory. This temple rebuild, it is a sad replica. The older generation, Haggai also tells us that the older generation that's there uh, is reminding the younger generation what they already know. They know this. This temple is a sham of a rebuild. Everyone's discouraged, utterly broken. And on top of all of that, you've got the opposition of their neighbors, the people who were still around, the Palestinians who are around, who watched this ragtag group of Jews move back in, and they don't like it. And so they start to frighten the Jews. They interfere with the work. They slander the Jews to the Persian empire, trying to get them in trouble for sedition kind of stuff. Okay, these are the people that God sends his prophet Zechariah to. And here's the question. If God wants a temple, why does he make it so difficult? Like if he wants his people to do something, why does he throw... One obstacle after another at them and make it such a thankless, discouraging, painful, miserable process. Like, why did God do that then? Look around right now. Like, what is, like, why? Why did God do this to his people? C.S. Lewis, in his book, uh, The Problem with Pain, he puts it this way He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience. Shouts in our pain. It is this megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's one way to think about it. Uh, There's a new television series uh, by National Geographic called Welcome to Earth uh, with host Will Smith. And the first episode, I watched the first episode last night. The first episode is all about sound. You got this one group of explorers, they go to the Dolomites in Italy. They go to the Dolomites. Uh, to a place where there is no sound at all, deep, deep, deep under the Dolomite mountains. So they descend into this cave, and they go farther and farther and farther and farther. They're going down, down, down in this cave to the point where they're dropping down through holes in this cave to get to lower parts and lower parts and lower parts to, to where they are dragging themselves between like less than two feet of space, these crawl spaces they're dragging themselves through. Farther and farther and farther and down they go until they get to... 1500 feet below the surface of the earth so deep there is no sound there's nothing and one of the uh, the explorers they're sitting there and they're describing it to each other like it just like the silence feels so heavy and one of the explorers explains the phenomenon is that our brains don't want us to experience the silence And then the narrator explains, he says, if you want to hear something really quiet, quieter than your breathing, quieter than your heart beating, then you either have to stop those things or get out of the way. So they got out of the way and they go so deep that there is no sound. And then they turn on their instruments and they listen. And there are sounds. Sounds from deep, deep within the mountains. It's the, and the scientists think it's the sound of the moon's gravity dragging the mountains. Uh, the, the, you guys know that the, moon, uh, the moon's gravity pulls on the oceans to create tides? Well, they say the moon does the same thing to the land— that if you peeled away the sounds of New York City, eventually, if you get quiet enough, you would find those same deep rhythms because the moon moves cities too. They say New York York City rises and falls up to 14 inches twice a day, every day. They said it is an invisible wave of concrete and steel that you could hear if it was quiet enough and they call these earth tides. Okay, so all that to say, you're thinking about the people of Israel. Why is God doing this? What is going on? Think of our situation. All this to say, your suffering, it is not meaningless. Your pain does not mean that God does not love you. Your hurt does not mean that God has abandoned you. And we don't like this, We really don't like this, but it is actually the opposite. Of your pain, it may feel like God's megaphone rousing you to hear what you were deaf to before, or your pain may feel like a deep, deep pit of despair where you think all you hear from God is silence. But actually, it's there out of the way of the no, all the noise of life in your deep pain that you will hear what you otherwise could not possibly hear from God. There is a point to your pain. Uh, it begs the question, what did God want his people to hear? These poor persecuted small band of former exiles. What does he want them to hear in this pain, in this hardness? The first thing he wants him to hear in these first six verses is that having to rebuild the temple is not an accident. God brought the, God brought the Babylonians down on his people, on Jerusalem, as his judgment for Israel breaking the law. As in, like, why no king? Why so few Israelites? Why so poor? Why oppressed on every side? Why suffering on every side? Like, why no temple? Because God's people broke God's law, and they were judged by God. The book of Zechariah begins with this warning from God that Israel is still under the, quote, the law as in God has brought them back to the land, back to Jerusalem, and once again, they are now a theocracy. They are once again under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, that covenant that God gave his people Israel at Sinai, and this is a works arrangement, as in you work And you get the blessings of the covenant, which is the land of Canaan. And you get your king. And you get to be the nation, the kingdom of Israel. You get to be a people. Okay? You don't do the works of the law, and you get the curses of the covenant. You lose the land. You go into exile. You lose your king. You are no longer God's people. So God tells Zechariah to tell the people to return to the Lord and we want to say how discouraging to these people who are already broken and already poor and if that's what you're feeling if that's your sentiment guess what yes yes as in in a very real sense ultimately this is discouraging which begs the question so why the law so why do, like, why do this? Why the law? The Mosaic law, this is why the Mosaic law was given to show Israel their inability to obtain God's ultimate blessing of heaven through law-keeping. They can't even hold on to the symbols of the land and their king and their nationhood through law-keeping, much less the eternal kingdom of heaven. It was not given to encourage them to think that they could obtain the the, the inheritance of eternal glory by keeping the law. Because some today try to argue, when they hear these kinds of things, try to argue that this would be super. This kind of arrangement would be super confusing to the Israelites because it would make them think that they could actually merit eternal life by keeping the law. But the purpose of it is actually the exact opposite. The whole reason God gave them the law was in order to shut up Israel under sin and show them that they could not do it. And therefore to lead them to a Savior who could. The law, what the law does is the law exposes your sin and it exposes your need of a Savior. It's, what the law does is it smashes the delusion that you can earn God's favor by your works. If you see what the law exposes about you and you get to the point of realizing that you are a mess, the law has done its job. Because one day, one day you stop running to the law to fix what the law cannot fix, and the law takes you by the hand, and it leads you to Jesus, to the one who can fix you to the one who can save you, to the one who can overcome your sin. And when you get to Jesus, he does not scold you. He does not shame you. He does not lecture you. He embraces you. It's the grace of God for train wrecks of people like the Israelites, like us. And the true former glory of the temple, like you think about the temple and you think about it, like what was so glorious about that temple? It actually wasn't the gold. It actually was not all the material beauty of that temple. The glory of that temple in Solomon's day, it was the presence of God in the temple. God wanted his people to return, not just to the land, and not just to rebuild the the temple. He wanted them to return to him. And the name Zechariah means that Yahweh remembers. That's what Zechariah's name means. and It's a super, super fitting name because Zechariah's prophecies, these night visions that we're going to go through— What what his whole message is about is about how being brought back to Jerusalem and this rebuilding of the temple, it is a sign. It is a sign that God does, that he will remember and deliver on his promises to his people to deliver a glorious kingdom where God dwells with his people. And he is their king in a realm of heavenly paradise, And that begs the question uh, of—you think about the Israelites in their state. Like, how? How will God's kingdom be established with a small group of insignificant, poor, weak, ragtag, recent exiles? Because the Old Testament had prophesied for God's people returning from exile that when they got back to the land— They would finally have the privilege of having a descendant of David sit on the throne. That they would finally have their king of kings, a second David, a Messiah. So this is a big, bright red flag. Here at the end of the Old Testament, Darius is king, not a descendant of David. God's people do not have a king in the line of David sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. And when the Persians get beat and displaced, it's the Greeks who rule everything, including Israel. And when the Greeks get beat and displaced, it's the Romans who rule everything, including Israel. So from the end of the Old Testament, from Zechariah for the next 500 years until the New Testament, God's people are under the domination of a foreign power, and the question is, hey, what about this kingdom And the reason why the law, this old covenant works, uh, 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 this law, this old Mosaic covenant, it's this context of works, of this arrangement with Israel in the Mosaic law that gives the Israelite people the context for understanding who Jesus is when he comes and what he does, that he is the true king of Israel who has come at last, who truly fulfills the the law of God. Loving God with all his heart and soul and mind and body and strength, loving his neighbor, and not just his neighbor, loving his enemies. The one who not only fulfills the law, but then also pays the ultimate penalty for his people and takes our eternal curse on the cross. Another pastor in Houston, uh, uh, out west, uh, Uh, Todd Bordeaux uh, uh, at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, another one. Uh, He says, what we don't have here in Zechariah after Israel's exile, what we do not have here, Israel has come back. What we don't have here is the establishment of the new covenant. That's not what's going on. This is still the old Mosaic law covenant, which means something greater is still to come. Because the old covenant Law it comes with judgment. It comes with threats of curses. That's throughout the Old Testament. The New Covenant, Jesus comes with grace and promises of blessings. It's and, and it's not because what you have is two different gods. That's an old old heresy. It is not going to work. It's not like oh you've got the Old Testament judgmental God and then you've got the New Testament you know grace you know really nice God. No. And it's not that God relaxes his standards finally in the New Testament. He finally chills out. It, like in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, he had really super, super strict standards. In the New Covenant, he relaxes his standards. That is not what happens. You go read the New Testament, and Jesus says, hey, you've heard it said don't murder. I'm telling you, you look at your brother the wrong way. That's murder. Hey, I'm telling you, don't look at a woman. You know, you've heard don't, don't you know, commit adultery. I'm telling you, you look at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery. Like, what? It gets stricter. Like the new covenant law, and there is law there, it is stricter. It's not that God relaxes his standards. He can't relax his standards. That would make God less perfect. That would make him not holy. God cannot change who he is. He cannot change his character, his holiness. God only ever has one standard, and it is perfection. It is, how does the new covenant come in grace? It is because Jesus has come to fulfill the law for us. Where God's people have failed, Jesus is obedient. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is our righteousness. And we do not have to follow the law to be righteous. Jesus follows the law for us, and Jesus takes the penalty for our sin. Jesus fulfills all righteousness for us and takes the wrath of God due our sin so that Jesus can turn to us in grace. God has not changed his demands, his demands of perfection and justice. They've been met in Jesus. And now, with Jesus, his kingdom comes. Loved ones, Jesus has come. He is coming again. And while we wait, we are asking the same question. How will God's kingdom come with a small, weak, marginalized, seemingly insignificant ragtag group that we call the church. And not just this church. I just mean every church around the world. The church around the world, that is who we are. We are a small, weak, marginalized, seemingly insignificant ragtag group. How is God going to bring his kingdom with a group like that? Exiles on earth here. Uh, I remember, uh, I remember April 2020 really well. Uh, it was awful. The pit of despair. Uh, and I remember reaching out to one of my mentors, uh, Ricky Jones, who's a pastor in Tulsa. He he led a whole group of uh, the college ministers, RUF college ministers, to plant churches. So I called him and I asked if I could just cry and, uh, and just tell him everything. And he said, of course. And so he He listened to me, and when I was done, uh, and after he had given me some very gentle, and bold, and kind counsel, you know, I turned and I asked him how he was doing. And he said, and this is what he said, (laughs) I wrote it down right after he said it. He said, "You know the movie True Grit?" And he said, "Not the original, Uh, not the original, but the one with Jeff Bridges." Uh, You know, at the end, uh, the marshal, Jeff Bridges, has rescued the little girl from the outlaws but she's been snake bit and now he's got to ride through the day and he's got to ride through the night to get to the nearest doctor and this marshal he is old and he is so run down he's so ragged and his horse is getting tired and his horse is giving out and he keeps pushing the horse until the horse won't go and then he pulls out his knife and gives the horse a poke uh, 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 to get the horse going again until finally the horse collapses and dies. And then the old marshal has to pick up the girl and carry the little girl himself. This is what Ricky's saying to me. He's like, you remember all that? I'm like, yeah, I love them. Yeah, I remember that. And Ricky said, I'm the horse. (laughs) I thought he was going to say, I thought he was going to say, you know, I'm the marshal, I'm run down, but I'm going to keep going, whatever the cost, whatever the odds, save that little girl, a.k.a. his church, is not what he said. Um, He said that he was the horse and that he has been ridden to death. But then he said, But Jesus is alive, and it's his church, and he's already died for her, so the church is going to be fine. Loved ones, what sets Christianity apart from every other religion that ever was and is, what sets Christianity apart is not our righteousness, it's our Savior. It is not our works, it is Jesus's works. It is not us, it is Jesus. It is his grace and his grace is found at the cross. And you need to know this today and tomorrow and the next day, you are not under the law, but under grace. And that's the difference between Christians and everyone else, we are not believing in ourselves. We are believing in Jesus and his kingdom will come because he'll do it. Let's pray. Father, we bow our heads, we bow our hearts before you as we pray together that prayer that our Lord Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.